You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Right. If you have a Bible with you, if you'll make your way to the letter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, looking at four verses, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, 15 through 18. Once everybody gets there, I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. May God bless the preaching of His Word. As of this past Thursday, I for a second time, became a driving instructor. Now, I received this prestigious title. There's many roles I've had in my lifetime. But I received this prestigious title of being a driving instructor a year ago when I began to teach my daughter, Sydney, how to drive. And now it's Noah's turn. And on Thursday, he got his permit. So now not only does his work begin, but my work begins. And one of the things I learned from teaching my children how to drive is how important it is to help them learn from their mistakes. I mean, as a parent and as a driving instructor, wouldn't it just be amazing that the first time they got in the car, you shared with them all the things they needed to do and they just flawlessly executed it, right? Wouldn't that just be amazing? Well, if that's all, if it was that easy, they would need a driving instructor and they would not need the amount of hours they're required to drive. Because none of us learn that way. We need instruction. I needed instruction and my children have needed instruction. And actually looking back on my experience teaching Sydney how to drive a car, it was actually the mistakes that she made and that she learned from that taught her to be, I I believe, a good driver. My daughter is a good driver. And I think it it was because of mistakes she made that she then said, okay, we, we talked about, okay, what, what are you going to do different next time that I think helped her and taught her the most? You see, mistakes are often the greatest teachers, aren't they? Mistakes are often the greatest teachers. Actually, let me rephrase that. Mistakes are often the greatest teacher if we'll take time to learn from them. If we will learn from our mistakes, we, we, we will receive valuable instruction. 
And that's the takeaway from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18 this morning. You see, these Galatians, these Christians in Galatia whom Paul is writing, they are making two crucial mistakes. They're making two crucial mistakes that had serious spiritual consequences. They, they have important consequences if they're not corrected. Therefore, what Paul's doing by writing them this letter is he's seeking to be their instructor. He's seeking to help them see, do you realize what mistakes you're making? I mean, the ultimate thing is that you're going to the law and rejecting the, the grace that's found in Christ alone. But there are two other mistakes you're making that allowed you to get there. And Paul's wanting them to see these two mistakes. And church, this passage is a gift to us today. If we too are willing to not only learn from the mistakes of the Galatians, but to see ourselves in these verses. Because I think the two mistakes the Galatians made, we are susceptible to also. So what are those two mistakes? It's going to be up here on the screen. Mistake number one, to misinterpret the story of redemption. Mistake number two, to place too much emphasis on performance instead of promise. Those are the two mistakes that are mentioned here in these verses. We're going to see how Paul's going to unpack these, and we're going to see how this is the root of all that's going wrong in Galatia. They are going to misinterpret the story of redemption, and we are tempted to do the same. And, and they are tempted to place too much emphasis on performance instead of promise. So now let's see how that plays out in this passage. Look again at verse 15. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to, I don't know if you noticed. Did you see Paul's change in tone? He calls them brothers and sisters. And here's why that should be noticeable. Because the last time he spoke of them and called them by name, he said, oh, foolish Galatians. He was pretty exasperated with them. He was concerned, deeply concerned. They were in grave spiritual danger. So he's speaking to them with such firmness, not because he's angry with them or not because he's done with them. And we hear that here in these words, brothers and sisters, those whom Paul is writing, they are the objects of his affection and care. Now, it's imperative that we connect what's taking place in all of these verses, verses 15 through 18, that we, we connect it with what's already been communicated before we get here. It's easy anytime we're reading our Bible or listening to a sermon to just so focus on the passage before us that we forget that Paul's been writing a letter and he's been making a point. And this is just being added to what we've already heard in, in the, the previous week. So how does this fit in? What is Paul saying here that helps us understand where he's going next and the point he's making? Well, it's imperative that we see how Paul is connecting this passage with what he began to do in chapter 3, verse 6. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul began to use Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham as a key point of emphasis. 
And as Kyle reminded us, starting in chapter 3, verse 6, Abraham appears and he will be the central figure of the rest of chapter 3 and even into chapter 4. And so he's showing us how God made this covenant with Abraham. And here in verse 15, Paul uses an analogy to illustrate how we ought to understand the covenant the Lord made with Abraham. So before just jumping in, talking about this covenant with Abraham, Paul gives us an analogy, and here's the analogy he uses. He says, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The point Paul's making is actually quite simple, but it's foundational. Can you, can you see what Paul's doing? Before discussing God's covenant with Abraham, Paul makes this observation. He says, once a covenant has been made, this covenant, even between people, it's binding. It cannot be altered by either party. Now this week, I experience what Paul is referring to here in verse 15. The Lord gave our family, a fresh example of this illustration Paul used. Why is that? Because on Friday, our family signed the papers to sell our house. Now, we are staying here in Seguin. We are just moving to a different place. But we sold our house of over 12 years. This is the house my children have grown up in, the only house that they remember. We have many memories in this house. And on Friday... We sold it. Now, once the papers were signed and the payment was exchanged, here's what we could not do. On Saturday morning, we couldn't say, you know what, I think that upon further reflection, we have so many memories in this house, I think we're going to stay here. Once the papers were signed, the agreement was made, money was exchanged, that house is no longer our house. We are now in a house that we no longer own. And it belongs to someone else because we made an agreement. We couldn't say to the people who bought our house as of Sunday or as of Saturday, hey, you know what? We're going to move out of the house, but here's what we've done. Hope it's okay with you. We've invited some other people to stay there. Not our call. It's not our house. We've made a contract. We must Keep to the contract. See, once the agreement is made, it must be honored. Now, if this is true of a covenant or a contract made between people, how much more so is this true when God makes a covenant? That's the point Abraham that, that Paul's making. He uses this human illustration and says, hey, listen, once a contract has been ratified, covenant has been ratified, you can't go back on it. That's not what you can do. And he says, then if that's true between humans, how much more so is that true when God makes a covenant? You see, God made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant that was foundational to how he would relate to Israel and how he relates to us today. So we better understand this covenant. We better understand how it functions because God has made this covenant and this covenant is so important to our understanding and our relationship with the Lord. 
Paul continues on then in verse 16 after coming out of this illustration and he makes this point. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now even though the word covenant doesn't appear in chapter 16 or verse 16, I believe it's apparent. That's what Paul's referring to when he speaks of Abraham and the promises. He's speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember in Genesis 12 was the first time we hear of this covenant God makes with Abraham. We hear of it again in chapter 15. We hear of it again in chapter 17. And then later on when Isaac is to be the, 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 the son who is going to continue on with this covenant. We hear it again in chapter 22. This covenant is central not only to the story of Genesis, but to the people of God. Now, in the rest of verse 16, Paul adds a parenthesis in the second half of verse 16 that we're going to come back to later. So I'm going to skip this passage or this part, and I'm going to return to it in a few minutes. For now, let's look at verse 17 to see why Paul is making this point about the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 17 with me. Like I said, we're going to come back to the middle part of verse 16. I'm skipping it for a reason. Because what Paul just said in verse, at the beginning of verse 16 flows right into verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. So he gives this illustration. He says this about Abraham and his promises. And now he's explaining. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Do you get what Paul's communicating here? He mentions how the law, which is the Mosaic covenant, should be reviewed in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. So that we don't see either of them mentioned by name. What Paul's talking about here is the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. That's what the law is. When he refers to the law here in Galatians, he's speaking of the Mosaic covenant. And he's talking about their relation to one another. And here's what Paul says. The Mosaic covenant does not cancel out God's original promises to Abraham and to his offspring. And when we pay attention to when the law was given, 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham, we realize that Abraham was not justified before God because he obeyed the law. Do you see what Paul's doing? Here are people that are putting everything on the Mosaic law, saying you want to be a, a follower of, 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 of God, you want to be a part of His people, you must keep the Mosaic law. And Paul goes and says, well, here's the problem with that. You would look at Abraham as the father of your faith. God made promises to Abraham, and it wasn't until 430 years later that the law came. See, Abraham believed God's promises to him, and we're told that it was credited to him as righteousness. His believing in God is what made him right with God, not his keeping of the law. The law wouldn't even exist for another almost 450 years. So anyone who says, well, Abraham was right before God because he obeyed the law. Paul's going, what law? It wouldn't be 10 years, 20 years. 430 years later, the Mosaic law would come on the scene. And Abraham was not even circumcised until chapter 17. So here these Galatians are demanding that these Gentiles be circumcised. And he says, here's the problem with that. Not only did the law come much later, the promises were made in chapter 12. 
and chapter 15. Circumcision doesn't appear till chapter 17. And when it does, it's just a sign that Abraham and his descendants are children of promise. Do you see the error that the false teachers in Galatia were making by demanding circumcision? They're saying it's necessary for anyone desiring to be a part of God's family to be circumcised. And do you see why elevating the law of God to a central place in our relationship with God, it doesn't make sense? Remember, we said that's what legalism is. Legalism is any time we make the law of God central to our relationship with God. And that's exactly what they're doing. See, the order of events, Paul says, matter. He's helping them see the error of their thinking by showing them the order and the timeline of events. The Mosaic Covenant, he says, is not more important to God's people because it came later and therefore changed the way God required His people to interact with Him. No, that's not true at all. Because the Abrahamic covenant came first and it existed long before the Mosaic one, we must view the Abrahamic covenant as central and permanent over the Mosaic covenant, which, by the way, was temporary. So not only was the Abrahamic covenant first, it's permanent. The Mosaic covenant didn't come for almost 450 years later, and it's not permanent. But yet they have it the other way Around Those in Galatia were getting it backwards and therefore they were in error. See, membership in the household of God has always been a matter of faith, not law keeping. Membership in the household of God has always been because of a gift of grace, not a reward earned by merit. I wonder if sometimes we can view the Old Testament as the Old Testament's about law And the New Testament's about grace. If we believe that, we don't understand the story of redemption. Because God's promise to Abraham never had to do with law. It was all about grace. Grace has always been God's plan from start to finish. Let me me put this a little differently. God's people relate to Him by virtue of the promises God's made to them not due to their personal performance. That's not what the Galatians were about. That's not what the Galatians were making much of. They they weren't banking on the promises of God. They were putting all their stock in personal performance. Are you keeping the law? How well have you kept the law? And Paul's saying, "That's that's not the story of Scripture. That's not how things have transpired. That's not how God has done things. Don't put... What God did with Moses before what he said to Abraham. That that is detrimental. If that's exactly what they're doing. And then look at verse 18. He finishes off this section by saying. For if the inheritance comes by the law. It no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham. By a promise. What point is Paul making here by saying that? By ending this section By just reiterating, the inheritance didn't come by the law. No, it came by a promise. Well, first of all, I find it helpful to substitute that word inheritance, maybe for the word benefits. Think about that word benefits. If God was going to call a people to himself, which he did starting with Abraham, and he was going to have this people through Abraham's line, 
Don't you think if they're God's people, there's got to be some benefits to that? There's got to be some perks to that? It's got to mean something. It can't just be a title and a name. Hey, we're God's people. What does that mean? Well, we're no different than anybody else. There's benefits. That's what he means by inheritance. And the point that Paul makes here in verse 18 is why did God's people receive these benefits? Why are they blessed? Why do they get this inheritance? Is it because of law keeping? Or is it because of promises made by God? See, not only is, did Abraham not become the father of Israel because of law keeping, but, but through promise. But the people of God would not experience the benefits of being the people of God because of law keeping, but because of promise. But see, once again, the order of events have been confused. The promise precedes performance. Often we get it the other way around. That's what the Galatians were doing, and we can be tempted to do the same. But look how Paul ends this section. He says, but God gave it. That's this inheritance. He gave it to Abraham by a promise. What God gave to Abraham was a gift. That's what the word in the Greek here for given means. He gave it as a gift. And here's what's neat about this word. that He gave it to Abraham. It's not in the past tense. It's in the present tense. He's still giving this gift to Abraham and to his descendants. See, what God had given to Abraham was a gift and it's still being given to all those who place their faith in Christ today. That brings us back to the passage, the part in verse 16 we skipped over because Paul added this little parenthesis. Let's go back and look at this parenthesis. Why does Paul say what he does here? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? What in the world is Paul meaning here? What, what, what is he getting at? Well, a number of clues are found here in Galatians, but we could spend tons of time here, but I think maybe the best illustration of what he's saying can be found in the opening page of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Maybe you're familiar with this genealogy that begins Matthew's gospel, that begins our New Testament. And notice how it begins. The book of the genealogy, the descendants of Jesus Christ, or, or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does he mention the son of David and the son of Abraham? Because the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, Jesus fulfills. And then what does he do? He begins with Abraham, shows you all of Abraham's descendants leading to David. Then he picks up with David, shows all of David's descendants, and then he gets he traces all of that to Christ. And he's basically making this point. That though God made a promise to Abraham, that promise was to be find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's what he means by saying he didn't promise it to just descendants, but to his descendant. You say, but I thought it was made to more than just Abraham. Well, how, how could it be singular? Well, we see it right here in Matthew chapter one. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant, and we get that here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And look at how chapter 3 ends. Verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you see what's happening here in this passage? Do you see why Paul is making the point he is about the order of events and the storyline of Scripture? Failing to make these vital distinctions about the order of events in redemptive history. And by emphasizing performance over promise, and by missing how all of Scripture points us to Christ, it calls those in Galatia to reject the grace of God and to choose law-keeping in order to be justified by God. So do you see how those two mistakes they made were costly mistakes? They misinterpreted the story of redemption. And they began to emphasize performance over promise. But that was never God's plan. And how everything that God had said made its way to Jesus and points us to Christ. All of Scripture does that. Well, if this is the case, and we're susceptible to the same, how do we avoid similar errors? If we're susceptible to make the same two mistakes the Galatians made, what can we do to prevent that? Well, I want to suggest two ways. Here's the first one. Study Scripture carefully. Study Scripture carefully. See, one of the main issues at play in the churches of Galatia was their misreading of the Scriptures. And because of their misreading of the Scriptures, they misunderstand the way the law of God was meant to function in God's plan of redemption. Now, even though the problem of misinterpreting Scripture is never stated explicitly here in Galatians, isn't that exactly what we see Paul doing and mentioning here in chapter 3. Look back at chapter 3, verse 8. As Paul is correcting their wrong understanding about Abraham and about his justification, listen to what, what Paul says. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So obviously, they, they don't understand that that's what the Scriptures were always doing. So by Paul saying, if you believe Abraham was justified by works, then your problem is that you don't what? Understand the Scriptures, because the Scriptures were preached the Gospel beforehand. So He's pointing to the Scriptures. And isn't that what he does then in verses 10, 11, and 12 that we looked at last week? Paul made these three assertions. He makes one in verse 10, one in verse 11, one in verse 12. And what does he do after each one of these assertions? Look again, it says, for it is written. He goes back to the Bible. He basically quotes from the Old Testament and says, listen, the reason you're struggling to understand these things is because you're misunderstanding Scripture. You're not reading it carefully because Scripture is clear that this was never God's plan. Now that leads to this question, in what way was Scripture being misinterpreted in Galatia? What can we learn from their mistakes? If they're misunderstanding Scripture, therefore that's leaving them vulnerable to all of a sudden think, oh man, we, we got to go back to law-keeping. That's great that we believe in Jesus. Great. Nothing wrong with that. But we got to go back to law-keeping. How did they get there? They've gotten there because they're hearing these teachers 
open up the scriptures and say things that are opposite of what the scripture teaches. Therefore, they're not reading scripture carefully. So what are they doing? Well, those in Galatia failed to understand the covenants that God has made with his people. That's one of the things they're doing. They're failing to understand the covenants that God made with his people and the benefits of those covenants. But here's what else they're doing. They're failing to understand how those covenants relate to one another and how all of those covenants point us to Christ. Isn't that exactly what they're doing? I mean, if you look back at our passage for just a moment, verses 15 through 18, isn't that the two things you see Paul making mention of? They're they're getting the covenants wrong. And they're forgetting that all the covenants point to Christ. Isn't that exactly what Paul's saying? I want you to see this so you don't think I'm just making this up or this is my opinion. That's exactly what he's saying is wrong with them. How did they end up where they are? How could they hear the Apostle Paul preach the gospel and possibly in less than a year's time, these false teachers come in and get them to start believing things opposite of what they've ever heard? Because They don't understand the covenants and how they fit together. And they don't understand how all the covenants point them to Christ. That's the mistake they were making. And that's the mistake we can make. So let me ask you this question. Are you aware that the entire story of Scripture and the entire structure of the Bible is based on and built around covenants? Do you know that? The entire story and the entire structure of the Bible is based on and built around covenants. Remove covenants, you have no Bible. Why do you think it's called an Old Testament, Old Covenant, and a New Testament, New Covenant? All of the Bible is the story of God making promises to people. No one ever came to Him. He's always going and He's making promises and His relationship with His people is always based on what? That covenant. The only way they can relate to him, the only way he can relate to them is all about this covenant. You misunderstand the covenants and how do you understand the Bible? I heard someone once say that the covenants are the architectural framework of Scripture. Or to use a different analogy, the covenants are the skeletal structure of the Bible. Now, if this is true, That the covenants are the very framework of Scripture in which all of the truths of Scripture hang. Then why don't we pay more attention to the covenants when reading Scripture? Why don't we do that? I mean, that's exactly what the Galatians are failing to do. Those in Galatia appear to have been making much more of the Mosaic covenant, but ignoring the emphasis and the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. And if time allowed us, we could go through the entire New Testament and see that what's happening in the Gospels is Jesus unpacking the Old Testament and even pointing at the Pharisees' understanding of the law and the covenants and promises made to Abraham and saying, no, they didn't get it right. It all points to me, and here's how you understand it. Think about the book of Romans. It's doing the same things Galatians doing. Think about the pastoral epistles. How many times in the pastoral epistles are there examples of, of the false teachers in Ephesus using the law of God wrong. And Paul doesn't just correct them. He says that's what's wrong. And then he shows how all of these covenants point to Jesus and how they're to be interpreted. Think about the book of Hebrews. A whole bunch of Christians are wanting to go backwards 
And go back to all of these things. They want to go back to temple and sacrifices and ceremonies and days. And he's saying, don't you really understand? All that was pointing this way and, and Christ has come. Why would you see Christ and then want to go backwards? You can't understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand covenants. Think about the book of Revelation. You know what? One author named a book he wrote on the book of Revelation. He named it the climax of the covenants. The book of Revelation is covenantal. Why do you think it ends with by saying anyone who adds to this book? Because it's a covenant. See, the whole Bible is a covenantal book. I love what Matthew Harmon, one scholar on the book of Galatians said. He says, the Bible is not simply a collection of wise religious sayings or interesting moral tales. It tells an overarching story that runs from Genesis to Revelation. In that story, God progressively reveals His plans and His purposes. Paying attention to the sequence of events and the relationship between the people, the promises, and the covenants is an essential part of understanding how the Bible fits together as a coherent whole. As believers, we benefit tremendously by learning to read the Scripture the way that Jesus and the apostles modeled for us. So one of the mistakes we can make is lose sight of everything in this Bible is all in relation to, to covenants. And understanding how they fit together then helps us to avoid the second error that we can make. And that's not seeing how they point us to Christ. All of Scripture points to Jesus and what He's accomplished. That's the point Paul's making in chapter 3, verse 16. He's saying, not only do you, you Galatians not understand the covenants, but you don't understand in all your arguments and all your talk about the law and Abraham. Don't you realize all of that was given to prepare for Christ? He's come. So you should read all of this differently than you do. So how can we make Jesus Christ the object of all of Scripture? Well, we could spend a long time talking here, giving me, I could give many examples of how we can do this. And there's wrong ways to do this. I'm not trying to say that we find Jesus in every little story like it's a where's Waldo and we're trying to find Jesus. You know, Jesus, oh, the cross must be in the acacia wood used in the ark. No, that's not the point being made. And people have done that. And that's not, I don't think that's what the scriptures are doing. But Jesus is the point of every scripture. Jesus said so himself in the road to Emmaus. So are you reading the entire Old Testament? As one, this is what I've done. It helped me many years ago read my Old Testament differently. If all of the Bible is pointing us to Christ and Christ has come, then I must read the scriptures in light of that. I stand this side of the cross, the resurrection and the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit. If all of this was pointing to that day and it's happened, then I can't read the book of Esther the same way the original audience would have. I can't read the laws of God the same way. I can't read the Psalms in the same way. That doesn't mean that what they were originally saying has no merit. But on top of that, I have to think, okay, how does this point us to Jesus? But how often do we fail to do that? I want to encourage you to add that question to your Bible reading, especially when you're reading the Old Testament. How do I read this differently now that Christ has come? Here's the second question that's really helped me especially when it comes to application. How do I seek to apply this passage in light of my union with Christ? You know what Galatians 2.20 just said? 
I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, and the body I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, if that's true, I have now union with Christ. Then every passage I read, I should say, not only how does this point me to Jesus, but if I belong to Jesus and all the resources of Jesus and all the power of heaven belongs to me because I'm in union with him, how do I seek to, to obey this passage now? Not in my own strength. Not pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. Do you see how reading the Bible that way keeps us from these errors of performance? And from just reading passages, but forgetting, where does this fall in my Bible? All the order matters, and all of it is pointing us to Christ. So, one recommendation is that we read Scripture carefully. Here's the second thing to close with. I think we ought to do to avoid this mistake of putting performance above promise. We're to celebrate sovereign grace. We're to celebrate Sovereign grace. Why do I say that? Think about Abraham's story. The entire point of Galatians chapter 3. Abraham is the poster child. Well, think about Abraham's story. What is Abraham's story? God called him by grace. He didn't become the father of Israel because he sought to please God and won God's favor. No one, I've never met anyone on the planet who's ever read the Bible that way. Everyone knows the story. Abraham was minding his own business and God said, you're going to be the man. Why? Because I said. Because I chose you. You're going to be the man. I'm going to start my family and my nation and my people with you. How did Abraham become the father of God's people? By sovereign grace. By sovereign grace. Grace. That's the point Paul's making here at the end of verse 18. God gave it this inheritance, this all these promises. He gave it to Abraham by a promise. Once again, that word gave, we could, we could substitute with the word graced. He graced him with these promises. See, the entire story of Israel, the entire story of Abraham is about God giving to Abraham something he never sought after or deserved. And if that is the story of Abraham, and Abraham is the father of our faith, isn't that our story? Isn't that our story? It is. Because if you move just a few pages over to the book of Ephesians, you hear Paul say this. I want to close by reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And here's why I want to read this section for two reasons. Number one, it's an entire sentence in the Greek. Paul begins this letter and he just is exploding. And notice all the connections between chapter, verse 3 and verse 4 and, and, and 14. All the things that sound so much like what we've been talking about. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Does that sound familiar? We've been reading how we, those who are in Jesus Christ, receive blessing. 
He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Oh, so it wasn't just Abraham's story. That's all of our story. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice the order. Don't get the order. He doesn't say he chose us because we were holy and blameless. He chose us to make us holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Guess what we're going to talk about in chapter four, verses one through seven of Galatians, the the beautiful truth of being adopted by God. And Paul's celebrating that here in Ephesians. He goes on to say, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses in him. We have redemption. Doesn't that sound like what we heard last week? Christ became the curse for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul saying the same thing, just in a different way in verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. You know what Paul just said in verses nine through ten? That God's plan from the beginning of time was always to get everything to Jesus. So if you think, well, Josh, are you reading into that whole point that all the covenants and all the Bible points to Jesus? That's what just Paul just said. It was a mystery for the longest time when Israel existed and Christ hadn't come. Everything was pointing in that direction, but it was in shadows. And now that Christ has come, it's clear. This is the reason God created the world. This is the reason God redeemed Abraham. This is the reason God's done everything. Jesus is the purpose behind it all. And then he goes on to say, in him, we've obtained an inheritance. Sound familiar? We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and who will we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What did we hear last week? Chapter three, verse 14. You're going to receive the promise of the spirit. Do you see what Paul just did in these verses? One sentence in the original. Paul is exploding with all of these truths just coming off his lips as he celebrates sovereign grace. Notice how this entire passage begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is praising God. But here is my concern. Talk of sovereign grace makes many who belong to Jesus very uncomfortable. That's not only ironic, it's tragic. Do you know why I say it's ironic and tragic? Because talk of sovereign grace should not make us uncomfortable. It's meant to do the opposite. In the Bible, talk of sovereign grace is meant to comfort us. Not confuse us, not cause debates and division. 
So what are we to do? We're to celebrate it. We're to celebrate sovereign grace. Because when we do, it helps us stay away from these errors that we're all susceptible to. Being more aware of performance than promise. When we neglect to solve. When we neglect to celebrate sovereign grace, listen, we're going to be susceptible to putting performance over and above the promises of God. If time permitted today, I would I would show you that even historically and throughout denominations, those who deny the sovereignty of God and salvation. Often, many of them believe you can lose your salvation. Many of them reject justification by faith alone. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that denominations that reject that often reject that grace is by faith alone and Christ alone and that they don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. Because if you reject God's sovereign grace, what are you standing on? Your own law keeping, your own doing. And how do we, how do we avoid that? We celebrate. We celebrate what God's people have always celebrated. God, you called us to be. You set your affection on us. It's not because of what we've done that's made us right with you. It's what you've done. And we want to bank on that. So let us be a people who read Scripture carefully and let us be a people who celebrate sovereign grace because if we do, I believe it will help us as a church and it will help us as individual Christians to avoid these two mistakes we've seen the Galatians make and that we too are susceptible to making. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these instructions today from long ago that we can see our, ourselves struggling in the exact same ways. And so we, therefore we can benefit from this passage. We too are susceptible to misunderstanding your plan of redemption. And we can put our performance over the promises that you've made. Lord, would you help us individually and would you help us as a church to, to avoid those errors? Lord, would you help us to be people who understand that the Scriptures are all about the grace of God. That they're all about what you've done. And that even when we are called to do things, Lord, we can do nothing you don't empower us to do, Lord. We, we are wholly dependent upon you. So we look to you. We ask for your help, both individually and corporately. Lord, protect us from the errors that we see in this church. May we not be so arrogant to think we would never be like this. That's what some other people look like. We're not legalists. We don't struggle with these things. We don't read the Bible wrongly. Lord, we are all in danger of these things. Use today's passage to protect us and to produce good fruit in us. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.